listeners, welcome to another episode of Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Louisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. In today's episode, we are talking with uh, Heather Pivovar. She uh, has found, or she co-founded an organization, the Unpaywall, um, which um, found a really clever way um, to uh, give us access to literature online. Basically. Absolutely. So basically, Unpaywall is a database and in a browser extension. And if you want to read an article and it's behind a paywall, it will search the entire internet to find you a version of the article that isn't behind a paywall. Um, and it, it, you can read it for free. And it works in about, I think Heather says, about 50% of cases. So. Okay. Uh, so I guess it searches all the institutional repositories and uh, any articles people upload on their personal web pages or exactly yeah yeah um so yeah it, it basically finds anything that's not behind where the journals kind of are, mm. are keeping it <laughs> and the lock and key oh okay yeah very cool so uh yeah before we talk more about it i think let's uh let's listen to heather let's get the story from the from the from the source from the source <laughs> yes, yes indeed. from the source My name is Heather Pivovar. I am a co-founder of Impact Story, a nonprofit company, along with Jason Prem. Uh, Impact Story has existed for seven years. Our goal is to build tools to bring about the transformation to open science. Um, before that, I actually have a background in electrical engineering and digital signal processing. I went to MIT. I worked as a computer scientist for 10 years, uh, got my PhD in biomedical informatics, and got into open science that way. Wow, um, that's, that's quite a journey. Um, <laughs> I kind of feel I should ask you a follow-up questions just on, on, on that, really. Um, you know what I am? So in, you went from engineering to biomedical informatics. That's I did. Is, is that quite a jump? Or it sounds like it's unrelated to me, but I'm, I'm a humanities person. Yeah, good question. It is pretty unrelated. But I guess over the course of 10 years, you end up doing things that are unrelated. So each, each step was sort of related. I was doing uh, voice recognition and uh, um, uh, text over cell phones when that was only cool in Japan uh, to start with, and then um, changed companies to follow my boss who went to a different company and liked me, and that was a biotech, um, and then started going back to school. And so, anyway, it all just kind of happened. Oh, okay. That's, that's yeah. really good. But for today... Could you tell um, us what Unpaywall is and why you and your colleagues helped create it? And so the colleagues is, is me and Jason Prem. So um, we are the whole company, though actually we're bringing on a third employee uh, this coming month. So that's pretty exciting um, to help with development work, um, especially around Unpaywall. But the, the people who created it are me and Jason. Um, Unpaywall is a database of links to open access articles. And that sounds pretty boring, but it's actually pretty transformational. So how what most of your um, listeners might know of Unpaywall as a browser extension. And yeah. so um, it is a free browser extension. If you do, haven't got it yet, go and install it now. Uh, it works for Chrome and Firefox. Uh, it's free. 
the way that it works is once you've installed it, if you go to a landing page of an article and we can detect that, uh, um, the, if the software can detect that it's the page um, that is a scholarly article, so it's got a DOI on it, um, we pop up a little logo on the side of the page, kind of discreetly on the what's right-hand side of the page. And that um, lock is gray if we cannot find a co free copy to read on the internet anywhere uh, and turns green when we can. And the exciting news is about half the time, uh, we can find a free copy somewhere on the internet. Sometimes to be fair, you're actually sitting on a free copy if you're looking at a PLOS article or a PeerJ article, but often you're sitting at something and it's, it's cool to see the um, green unlock icon, which if you click on, takes you immediately to a free article right beside a big box on a publisher page that says pay $39 to view. And it feels it, it feels like we're really unlocking the power wow. of open access that people have been building uh, for so long. So for decades now um, into archive and, and for a decade into PMC and so on, yeah. people have been archiving um, copies of their papers. And so what Unpaywall is, is we're finding all those all those copies, bringing them into one place, and then putting interfaces like this browser extension on top of it to help bring those copies to the places where people want to see them. So one one of the one of the um, uses is this browser extension. We've got some more uses which we can talk about later, but that that's what I'm paying is. Uh, I should say it's about twenty million. Uh, free to read, um, open access copies, which is really exciting. Wow. And like I said, it's about half of the recent literature um, is free to read. That's fantastic. That's, that's yeah, right? really cool. And oh my God, I wish I had had that resource when I was finishing up my PhD. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I, I didn't know about it or it hadn't been invented yet, but either way, brilliant. Mm -hmm. um, so how are people actually using this on the web then? Yeah, it's a good question. So in the browser extension, like I was saying, and that's also got some other really great uses. So I don't know if you noticed, but Europe PMC itself actually links to Unpaywall. So Europe PMC links directly to copies in PMC whenever they're available there. But sometimes um, articles are available for free, but they're not in PMC. They're in an institutional repository. Sometimes they're in bioarchive. Sometimes they're in... Uh, normal archive. And so PMC actually uh, about six months ago, I think, started linking uh, using the Unpaywall database and API to link out to these free copies. And they, in doing so, they doubled the amount of full text they um, linked to from something like or approximately doubled from something like 4 million to 7 million, which is really exciting. They're not the only ones. Uh, Scopus, Web of Science, and Dimensions also all use the Unpaywall database uh, to link directly from their articles uh, to a free copy um, and to give the data about what kind of open access the articles are for people doing analysis. So that's really exciting too um, from an assessment point of view and even more importantly, from a discovery point of view so people can read things. Um, and finally, another cool use is a lot of libraries are using us. About 2,000 libraries are using Unpaywall in their link resolver. So when you're on a library site and you click on a DOI link and you want to go to the paper, the library actually checks to see if it's in its subscription holdings first, and if so, sends you to the subscription page that it's paid for. 
If, if it doesn't subscribe, now it checks the Unpaywall database to see if there is a free copy on the web. And if so, it links you to that free copy. And only if there is not a free copy does it send you to their interlibrary loan page. And so we're helping people get that instant paper uh, that much faster, taking the burden off the libraries, making their patrons happy. So again, about 2,000 libraries are using our free API to do that. Um, they include the British Library, the University of California Library System, and, and all sorts of stuff. Yeah, it's really exciting. That's that's great. I mean, it sounds like it's it's really growing. It's, you're really yeah. kind of gaining momentum with this. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, for our kind of tech geek audience, um, could you just say a little bit, maybe in not too detail, but uh, a kind of uh, pricey of, of how you kind of went about creating this? Like what kind of system coding whatever did you did you use and what was your inspiration to create it yeah for sure i'd love to so it's a cool story actually so we have a product called impact story profiles um which people are welcome to check out um it actually gathers together lots of social media metrics lots of alt metrics um about your papers um and i could that's a different podcast so we'll talk about that but but it has badges and we wanted to give people a badge for being an open access hero if half of their papers were open access or or 100%, I forget what it is. Anyway, um, but so we wanted to collect that data. We didn't realize how hard that was going to be to collect. There weren't good APIs uh, that, that wasn't centralized. So frankly, Google Scholar actually has that information. Google Scholar does a great job of pointing people to open copies, but Google Scholar does not have an API, and they've said they never will due to agreements they've made with publishers. So that yeah. means we can't build on Google Scholar's um, results in our app. So instead, what we decided to do was go build it ourselves. Um, we looked at other people who had similar APIs like Open Access Button, which people might have heard of, Open Air, Core, uh, Dissemin, various, and they they got various of them got various bits of the puzzle right, but they either had their API limits were too um, low or their accuracy wasn't good enough or a variety of things. So, so we needed to build it ourselves. So we did. And then we decided that, you know what, this isn't just useful for our little cute button on the internet. Um, it's actually going to be useful for a lot of other people with the same problem that we have. So we made it available as an API about two years ago, and it really took off from there. So I can tell you a little bit now uh, about sort of at a high level, it's tech stack, if you want, for the geeks. Um, so it's written in, so um, the front end, the browser stuff is written in JavaScript, uh, Angular, I think. Um, but the back end is all written in Python. The data is in a Heroku database. We host all of it on Heroku. Um, uh, yeah, that's the tech stack. <laughs> That that that's fine. I mean, um, yeah, uh, I did a bit of Python uh, once because I had to to fix something, yeah. and that's about as far as my coding knowledge goes. I'm afraid. So uh, yeah, yeah, probably best to keep it at that level, or I'll just nod vacantly <laughs> at you. Um, it is all open source. I think, in, like for for the geeks in your audience. In which super includes me. Um, it's all open source, so it's on GitHub. Um, it's actually the the backend code is under Impact Story slash OADOI. Uh, that was its original name uh, because we had a link resolver that would take it to the OA version. Anyway, it's all there if people want to go have a look. 
Cool, that's great. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure there'll be some listeners who will definitely want to have a look. I mean, what, what is it about open science that you feel is so important that um, uh, justifies the, the, the work and time that you've put into it? Um, yeah, it's a good question. So my, so the way I got into it was through caring about open data and data sharing. So I was a PhD and I wanted to use other people's clinical trials data, their genomics data. And so at that point in the uh, mid 2000s, people were drawing lots of graphs of GenBank and the number of submissions to it, and PDB and the number of submissions, and Array Express and Geo and the number of uh, microarray submissions to those. But they were always like graphs that would go up, which was great. And so it felt like, aha, this is a super good idea to do. But then I realized um, nobody knew whether with the quality of the data that was going into those databases. So in the case of GenBank, almost everything was going in. But that wasn't true for microarray data, for example, or for most other uh, data archives. And so it wasn't clear whether it was this great quality stuff that people were really proud of that they were putting in or the dregs that they didn't, they were like, okay, I'm not going to use this. I'm willing to share this um, or, or the medium stuff. And so it felt a little like um, tenuous to build one's PhD and potentially career uh, building on top of this sure. data when you don't know what's in there. So, so studying what was in there be, and, and building incentives for people to put everything in there so that the good and the bad quality and we could know uh, became a real passion for me because it feels, it feels efficient, it feels fair, it feels like people can build you know, stand stand on the shoulders of giants, right? And it feels like it was what we should be doing. But the the incentive problem is a real problem because you do stick your neck out um, to do it early, yeah? Now, you can yeah. stick your neck out in ways that can give you some pretty good rewards because because it can be a star, you know, it can be a, a, an, a, an asset right now because it's not normal. On the other hand, it can also feel really scary. And what we actually want is everyone to do it. So what is it that it will take for everyone to be more open with their science? And so that's that's where the passion came for me. And, and it's a, just a short step, right, from there to care about open access, to care about alternative metrics and alternative products and so on. So, Okay, that that's really yeah, that's really interesting actually because you saying that you're coming from a, a data sharing background, mm-hmm. and what struck me when I was doing the research for this episode was that you've kind of applied the discoverability element that is usually discussed in terms of sharing data to mm-hmm. open access. Mm-hmm. Um, so normally, open access, all the discussion is is aimed at authors and to a lesser extent publishers making things open access where mm-hmm. you've kind of taken it from the other way around and gone well let's find out what's actually available and increase our open access that way right um, i think it's a really good point and i think it's one that doesn't get enough attention is that i think because in a lot of ways the discoverability problem was solved in many ways by google scholar yeah. The problem is that it wasn't discoverable in a way that other people could build on. So it didn't have those APIs. And right. the people and and people don't complain very much 
about something that's solved for the end user, but not for the integrators. You don't hear a lot of complaints mm. about that. What there is is this huge opportunity cost, huge. I mean, Unpaywall is a great example of that. Um, and I think also in data um, discoverability, there's another great use of that. Google, again, as it turns out, it wouldn't have to be Google, could have been somebody else, has built a data, what do they call it, data search tool, something like that? Oh, yeah, I know what you mean, yeah. Yeah, that came out in the last couple months, yeah. But right now, it's just a UI. Again, there's not an API on it, and it means that people can't build on it. And so I think that it's really, I'm while I'm glad there's now a UI sort of solution for it that works fairly well, best I can tell, I'm a little bit afraid that it will dampen down the talk about discoverability mm. of data sets and we will all be satisfied with this solution that doesn't let people build on it and i think that for that that discussion is is great it's great to get funding it helps it helps people who want to build that open infrastructure layer openly um, get funding have have get attention be the tool of choice mm. and so on and I, I think it does need yeah so I think it needs it needs more attention than it's getting and mm. I think I'm really glad that unpaywall to the extent that unpaywall can highlight the value of doing something openly and making it data open and the even though there wasn't which I think is an astute point a lot of discussion about how this was a problem. Yeah. It obviously was a problem because it's only two years old and it's really taken off. And I think really made the world a better place because a lot more people can find and read the scholarly literature a lot more easily now. That's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that's, well, obviously, I mean, I would I would say, but I, mean, <laughs> I can't see anyone arguing with, with that. And I mean, there's, a, uh, I think, a, a problem in general in that... Um, there's an, a lot of researchers who are actually quite willing to place their articles in an in, in an archive or their data online in some way, um, but as you say, there's a gap between what researchers are willing to do and what is actually usable information at the end of the day. And I think discoverability is and and usability and you know the the, the fair principles generally mm -hmm. uh you know findable accessible interoperable reproducible all the rest of it i mean i think that's where the gap is now i think i think we've essentially we're winning the 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 battle for um hearts and minds as it were as the americans like to say i think we're convincing people that this is something that needs to be done but it's just that everybody's doing it in a slightly different way and they're not, as you pointed out, doing it in a way that is maybe um, particularly helpful in terms of uh, expansion and, and extending mm -hmm. and making things better and building on things. So, yeah, for me, discoverability is is one of the kind of um, missing links in, in the open science movement. Um, mm -hmm. I read that um, Elsevier are now paying a subscription or linking to a unpaywall in some yeah. way. Um, do you feel that's a positive thing? Because Elsevier do get a really bad rap from the open science community generally. Yeah, they do. Um, so Elsevier is a customer of our unpaywall data feed. So we one thing we're super proud about about unpaywall is the sustainability model that we've developed. So the API is 
free for anyone to use. They can call it up to 100,000 times a day with just an email address as the token. Um, and it's a very fast API. And so, frankly, Europe PMC is building itself entirely on the API, which, and so are lots of others. It's, it's really, um, really generative, really, really working out well that way. We also yeah. do an entire dump of the database uh, every six months and make that available for people to use commercially and not commercially and non-commercially. Um, sorry, non-commercially and commercially to put the emphasis in the relevant place. Um, uh, which so, so again, open. It's open source, as I said. So there's the browsers for you. Yeah? Um, so it's very open. But there are some customers who want to keep a local copy and they want to keep it up to date. They right. also usually want a contract uh, to sign with somebody to say we have liability insurance, et cetera. Yeah. And so for those people having something to having a contract and a, a weekly feed uh, is useful. And so we offer that uh, called our data feed uh, service. And so some of our big um, integrators have subscribed to that. So um, Clarivate Analytics was the first one. They also gave us a grant uh, to do some of this, build some of this open source code, which was fantastic. I want to give them a shout out for that um, because they can, they sometimes get a bad rap and that was a really uh, open move on their part. Um, Dimensions is an early adopter as well. And so is Elsevier to put in their Scopus product and potentially other things in the future. So I don't... I have um, often myself had issues with Elsevier's um, approaches to things, uh, sure, open yeah. science um, but I am sure glad, thrilled that they are a subscriber to this product and mm. that they're bringing this data into Scopus. It makes open access more visible, more findable for everybody who can't, who wouldn't be on board with that. I think it's fantastic. Lee, this is for their Scopus product. It's not on their publishing side at all. Um, and so I'm just leaving out their publishing and tool access versus open access from their pub from their publishing side. I sure. think from a Scopus, from an analytics perspective, it's great news. What do you see as the, the kind of the next step for unpaywall and for open access generally? Um, where's the future? <laughs> yeah, good question. I'm a pretty big fan of Plan S, which I think isn't popular in some circles, um, but I think that's the future. I think radical okay. change. So I think Ooh. full open access and as soon as possible. And notably, that will render on paywall um, fairly useless, right? So all of that nice subscription business model we've got going on, that all goes away if you actually just follow the DOI and get to read the paper. But that is yeah. definitely the world I want. I am working as hard as I can to bring about that world. And paywall is a stopgap, uh, and I hope mm. it isn't needed. Um, it'll frankly still be needed some for back content and so on, yeah? But yeah. but um, but not at the same level. Um, and so... Yeah, so so I hope the future is full open access as soon as possible. If you had one kind of take-home message for uh, you know early career researchers who are who are looking to have a good career but also maybe try and do things the best possible way, what what would that be? So it would be to be the change you want to see. Yeah. And I think most researchers can see that a more open world will help us make the most scientific progress. 
And I think what most researchers want is the most scientific progress. They themselves want to make a whole bunch of it for sure. And they want to make some important parts. So do that. That sounds good. But along the way, do it in a way that's that's building a better system. And a better system is a more open one than we've got right now. I think it's got to be we've got to build the infrastructure to make it open for everybody. So, and also you've got to be the change you want to see. So I think do be willing to stick your neck out and make your papers open access. Um, I think do make your data open access, put your code um, on GitHub, do the things that you, that are pushing your field a little and, and then brag about it. So turn it into a, um, positive by saying why you're doing it and making it be a positive in job interviews on your, in your tenure case and so on. Not everyone's going to buy it, but a lot of people will. And right now we're still in, a, still in a spot where it will help you stand out and it will help you stand out as someone who cares about the future, is thinking about the future, is willing to be a little altruistic and is willing to be brave. And I think those are all really good attributes that will be respected by a lot of people um, evaluating you and along the way you're yeah you're building a world you want to see so that'd be my advice i liked what heather said at the end of the interview um, about being the change that you want to see in research and in open science well, I guess there's no way around it, huh? I mean, it's uh, uh, either you do it or you don't do it, but nobody else will do it for you. Well, unless you have wonderful people like Heather who actually do something for you. But, I mean, in, in the end, you have to use it, right? You have yeah. to live open science uh, in order for it to get established. So uh, it's like a revolution, yeah? I mean, nobody will do a revolution for you. <laughs> no, no, no. But I'm very glad that there are people like Heather who, who are maybe manning the barricades in yeah. your revolution <laughs> yeah, the, analogy here. The first wave, so to say. Yes, yes. You know, sort of Le, uh, Les Miserables type, you know. Um, yes. So I, I think we may have got off topic here slightly. Um. <laughs> yeah, no. I mean, I, I'm also, uh, also kind of um, hoping, just like she does, um, that Plan S... Um, will be uh, replacing all these um, initiatives. So we're actually going to be talking about Plan S next episode, so bear with us. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, Plan S is a European uh, initiative, top-down, totally, uh, to make all publishing open access, basically. Basically, if you receive uh, state or European funding, you have to do open access. Yeah. So we'll talk about it in a lot of detail next episode, so don't worry. Um, but the idea is that everything would be open access, which would make all these um, kind of fixes and patches, um, mm. like unpaywall, wonderful though it is, um, completely redundant. So. Mm. Yeah, but until Plan S is in effect, please do if go and... Plan S and if... <laughs> uh, Please do go and uh, just install the unpaywall. It's a very easy add-on, right, at the browser. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You just add it to your to your browser, and it's there doing doing good work for you. So I, I wasn't there for the interview. So Anna, but um, you you guys, when I listened to it, um, you talked a bit briefly about the Google search, the new uh, Google data search algorithm. So, data set search is still in the beta testing phase, but it's essentially Google Scholar for data sets. Uh -huh. um, so this is kind of what people have been hoping for. 
in that you will be able to search using Google's amazing power uh, for different uh, data sets and be able to analyze it and so forth. Um, and if you if you regularly putting data sets out there, it's worth getting in touch with them and um, putting your data forward to be included now um, at this stage because it helps them and it'll also be one of the earliest data sets available so your research mm. gets more well known. You do have to like you do have to sort of like uh, include your data set in their repository or like database. Sure, yeah, I think you have to uh, they have certain guidelines mm. for data set providers and you have to kind of okay, fit so, it into yeah. that. So at the moment they've got things like uh, NASA and Harvard's Dataverse available. That's cuz NASA have been making their data mm. open open access for years now. Oh, Na uh, NASA rocks. Yeah, oh. it's amazing. Oh, NASA just kicks ass. I mean... Yeah, we love NASA. Yeah. Everyone who <laughs> knows anything about open science is like Team NASA. I mean, I was Team NASA anyway because I love astronomy and space and astronauts and stuff. But, you know, um, then I, I did open science. And I was like, oh, NASA is also amazing for that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, that's some of the data sets they've got available. But, I, yeah, if you're interested at all in, um, in, in taking a look, uh, I'd recommend it. It's, it could be a game changer. I mean, Heather kind of alluded to that, that mm. it's probably going to be the next big thing. We have planned an episode on data um, data science. Well, not data science per se, but open data. <laughs> yeah, well, so. several on open data, but on data, metadata specifically and, and data repositories. Yeah, that's coming later yeah. this year. Maybe we can also try to reach the guys from Google and tell us more about the data set. That would be search. great. Yeah, We'll see. We'll keep you posted. we keep you posted. Oh, trust me. If we get an interview with Google, we'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> if you know of anybody who is doing similar stuff that we don't know of, uh, please tell us. I mean, we would love to have people on the show who are like, really hacking the system in a way. You know? Yeah, Just absolutely. Finding solutions to, to the problems people have and uh, find good solutions. And uh, So, yeah, if you, if you know anybody, let us know. Yeah, if you're part of any projects or um, personal endeavors, um, yeah, just, just tweet us or um, email us anytime. And the Twitter is the... OOSP underscore OrionPod. And the email is Orion at mdc-berlin.de. And you can find us on um, everywhere, really. Um, <laughs> iTunes and Podbean and all major... Uh, podcasting apps. This episode was brought to you from um, MDC, Max Lebuch Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin, in Germany. Um, the podcast is part of the Orion Open Science Project. The music is done by Fabio De Miguel and the sound editing done by Paolo Oliveira. And we hope that you enjoyed the episode and you will tune in next time. See you. Bye now. Bye.